Uh, Jeff, how long have you been learning about Charles Spurgeon? Yeah, I mean, that comment I made about how strange it was that this Chinese-American is watching over his books, uh, my, my love of Spurgeon didn't begin like at an early age when like my grandfather showed me like a volume of Spurgeon sermons. Nothing, I mean, no, it really began with my, my doctoral work. So probably starting in 2015. I mean, I knew about Spurgeon from before then, uh, but how kind of the Lord, starting in 2015, that I was You were in study, your 30s, 20s? I was in my 30s, really beginning to research him, and that I would be here speaking to you about him. So let that inspire you. If you have really never read any of Spurgeon... Within seven years, you could have a THD and running the library. The library. Um, yes. But yeah, so not as long as you might think. Uh, how old was Spurgeon when he moved to his grandpa's house? Yeah, I think this is from Avery, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah Avery's been uh, buzzing mm. on that one since we watched the documentary. Um, off the top of my head, I think he was just about one year old. One year old. One year old. Yeah. Which is really young. Mm. How were Spurgeon's sermons preserved and kept through the years, particularly the oldest ones in his youth. Yeah, so, um, you know, he, his sermons begin to be transcribed uh, starting in 1855. So he arrives in London in 54. He's called as a pastor. By 55, his sermons are starting to be published. So somebody would be in the, in the congregation uh, listening to the sermons. There would be multiple transcribers just taking out word for word uh, his sermons. Uh, and then he would take those transcripts, edit them on Monday, send them off to the publisher. They would come back with galley proofs. He would edit it again. And then by Thursday, it was out on the streets in little booklets. And by the end of the year, they're collecting all those sermons and publishing them in like a single volume. So Passmore and Alabaster was his original publishers. So you can still sometimes find those volumes of sermons on eBay or whatever. Um, <clears throat> but then in, in the 20th century, there was a publishing house called Pilgrim Publications, that went and republished all 63 volumes of sermons uh, that, that were published by Spurgeon. Now, before 55, for the lost sermons, uh, we uh, found his earliest sermon notebooks uh, there in, um, in Spurgeon's college, UK. And it was just in their archive room, sitting in a box, uh, and kind of discovered what those were. And so that's what we have... So we have actually not reprinted like his actual sermon transcript, but these are his sermon notes from which you can kind of piece together his sermons, his earliest sermons. Yeah. These are going to be a rocket fire. Yes, yes, I sorry. think some of these I'll, I'll I, could, right I could try to answer and just see how far off I am. How many elders did they have to care for that many members? Was it about 30 or 40? Yeah, at the height, about 30 or 40. Yeah. So about 30 to 40 caring yeah. for well, close to 5,500 yeah, or 6,000. Yeah. yeah, yeah, lots. Uh, what's your favorite Spurgeon work? If you had to pick one, that is a dangerous thing to ask someone on this topic, yeah, but at least hard. top of the list. At the top of the list, I think I would put his autobiography. Yeah, four-volume autobiography. It's such a fun read. So those black books back there. Because um, Spurgeon himself, I mean, he works on this, and he's just, he's, he's writing his autobiography as a pastor, so he's meaning for it not to be like a work of history, but he's teaching you about the Christian life also, so it's really rich. I think I heard you answer this one already. How many years did Spurgeon independently basically fork the bill to fund the students in the pastor's college before the METAP added to the ministry budget? It was about seven years? Yeah, for, for 54 to 61. Um, and it, it was Spurgeon forking the bill in terms of the sale of his sermons, but it was also Susanna being very frugal uh, and figuring out ways to feed these students and 
provide for them. So he would say, you know, it, it was possible as a team effort from him and Susanna working together. I'm going to try to get ones that are a little simpler to ask. Um, Sorry for whoever asked that question. No, so <laughs> it's not a bad question. It's just That's probably a good one just to ask maybe offline. Um, did Spurgeon have books of poetry in his library? Uh, thank you for asking. Why, yes. He, had, he loved poetry. <clears throat> he, he loved George Herbert. He loved all the hymn writers, Isaac Watts and Wesley. He loved William Cooper. Um, and <clears throat> so here's an here's a exciting announcement. Uh, we also have in our collection this little-known, never-before-published notebook of handwritten poems. And what, as I've researched it, I, I believe it is a uh, collection of poems that he himself wrote, um, about 186 poems, uh, private devotional poems as he's just reflecting on the Christian life, as he's reflecting on illness, as he's reflecting on being tired after a day of ministry, uh, the opening of the tabernacle. I mean, just all kinds of things that are going on in his life. He's writing poems as just a devotional exercise. Uh, so we discovered this notebook, and Lord willing, it will be published next spring. Um, so I'm actually working on finalizing that manuscript. Uh, so, yeah, never before published, never before seen, um, a volume of private and kind of devotional poems from Spurgeon. So look out for that. Uh, I think this is what the question is asking. Um, where did Spurgeon get his theology, understanding, maybe even from history, of his idea of the guarding of the Lord's Supper, fencing the table, and uh, I would probably even want to add in there the communion tickets. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Grant is thinking about making a motion in a members meeting, but I thought, <laughs> brother, we've got enough hills we're having to walk yeah, over. No. I think we'll just have conversations <clears throat> with an elder. But uh, yeah, where did he kind of get that robust conviction, yeah. and were other churches that careful of fencing the table or were they sloppy? <clears throat> yeah, the practice of fencing the table, that, that traces back all the way to Calvin in Geneva. I mean, it's part of the, that reformed sort of tradition that he comes from. Um, you know, and folks have done that in different ways in terms of fencing the table, sort of uh, only inviting those who are living in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ who have been baptized upon that profession of faith, only inviting those people to come to the table. Um, as far as the tickets go, I'm not sure exactly where he got that, but I, I suspect it, he might have gotten an idea from the, the Presbyterians, because the Scottish Presbyterians uh, would have the practice of using communion tokens. Um, so as a member of the church, you'd have a token that you'd present at the Lord's table uh, that would give you access. And so the tickets were kind of a, a modernized version of that um, that also allowed him to track your attendance. Um, so that's my guess, yeah, coming from the Presbyterians. Uh, I'm not sure which angle this is taking, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming the pastor's college because Spurgeon didn't have a seminary degree. Can you describe or explain Spurgeon's theological training? So I'm assuming, I mean, if you ask the question, you can boldly say, but what all went into the pastor's college training? Wait, like, what, was that last uh, what exactly went into the training oh. in the pastor's college? You mentioned some of the yeah, yeah. even basic education of yeah, Latin yeah. and writing? Yeah, so uh, it, it was, as far as I can tell, like a pretty rigorous course of training. I mean, a lot of theology, uh, Hebrew-Greek, but also Latin so that they could read the classics, you know, um, uh, lessons in rhetoric and preaching and history. Uh, so not that dissimilar from uh, a seminary today, um, you know, if, yeah. 
Uh, good question on just Spurgeon's prayer life. Any particular quotes that you enjoy? I'll just read one that I had even pulled up. Yeah, great. Uh, this is from the Only a Prayer Meeting book. Uh, Spurgeon said, if I have been useful to you in any measure, pray for me. It is the greatest kindness you can do to me. If the word is spoken by these lips have been a means of grace to your children, plead for me that others of the young may be brought to Jesus by my teaching. If you would find my ministry more profitable to your souls, pray for me still more. And let it not be said of your minister that you do not profit by his preaching, and that you have not, because you ask not. Beloved, let us wrestle in prayer for untold blessings are to be had for the asking. As a church, we have been especially favored, but we have not exhausted the possibilities of prosperity or the resources of heavenly power. There is a future for us if we pray. Greater things than these lie behind the curtain. No hand can unveil them but the hand of prayer. The singular blessings which have rested upon us in the past call upon us to pray. The marked prosperity and unity of the present invite us to pray, and the hopes of the future encourage us to pray. Behold, the Lord says to you, ask and you shall receive. Brothers, sisters, slack not your asking, but for the love of souls, multiply your petitions and increase in your importunity. So there's a ton of quotes by Spurgeon on prayer. Yeah. Yeah. you have any off the top of the cuff there? Well, my favorite story, <clears throat> you know, where he talks about um, sometimes praying, leading his church in prayer in the, in the service and feeling so close to the throne room of God, you know, that when he finishes his prayers and opens his eyes, he's disappointed to find himself still standing among the mortals, you know, <laughs> of this world. Um, but you get the sense that, you know, here was one who in his public prayers reflected something of his private prayer life. And, uh, yeah, he wasn't putting on a show. He really communed with Christ. One of the things, too, you'll notice uh, if you read through his stuff, and even in Jeff's uh, book, you might ask, what were the church services like at the Metropolitan Tabernacle? The sermon, the prayers, et cetera, and so forth. Uh, one of the things that you'll find is that there was, to my understanding, no musical accompaniment. It's true. It was all sung a cappella. We're talking 5,500 people or so. And you even have in your bo book, I love that favorite quote that, Every once in a while, or probably often, you know, just like it is for us, when you're getting up to, to sing that first song, sometimes it's a little rough. <laughs> well, even at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, at, you know, over 5,000 people, you would think would sound like a, you know, a rustling, uh, amazing choir. And it said like it was like awakening a giant from sleep. <laughs> it was a little groggy at first, a little rough, but the singing would carry on, especially in light of the sermon. So just some encouragement as grand and as massive as the facility was in the gathering, there were real people just like us. And even Mark Twain said he was bored out of his mind, basically. That's true. Um, so, you know, only God can produce that kind of changed life, whether it's a gathering of 13 people amen. or 1,300 people. Yeah, amen. Well, guys, let's give a hand to Jeff for his time. If you are uh, planning to... Be here tomorrow, of course, as you're a member of the church. Obviously, I would want you to be here. Uh, but if you're visiting, you're more than welcome to come and attend tomorrow. Jeff will be preaching from 1 Samuel chapters 13 and 14. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to learn more about his book and what's in there, you can talk to him if you have any lingering questions. Other than that, I'm going to close this in prayer, and we'll be dismissed. Father, we do thank you that we had this wonderful opportunity to learn from one of your servants, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, one day we'll be able to fellowship with him around the marriage supper of the Lamb, he and Susie. 
and talk about how their ministry was used by the Lord. And yet, in the same breath, Lord, we know that in this life, uh, we are only here for a moment. In a little while, it'll be a long time ago. And so we pray that we would keep our eyes on the same Savior that Spurgeon did, Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we thank you for Jeff and his preparations, his studies, his tireless hours. Uh, For his wife, Stephanie, Lord, thank you for her and her support in his ministry uh, and their three children. Uh, Lord, we pray that we would be an encouragement to them, that we would refresh their hearts with words of kindness and gratitude. Lord, we pray you would bless his ministry uh, there at Midwestern uh, Seminary, as also as a lay elder at Wernal Road Baptist Church, and as a father. Lord, we pray that you would bless their family. Uh, Lord, we pray here at CCBC uh, that we would take what we've learned today individually as Christians and be motivated to continue being faithful, knowing that our labors are not in vain. Lord, also we pray that here as a local church, that at CCBC, whether we have very slow growth or we have long-lasting, abundant growth, Lord, we pray that we would remain faithful and other churches represented here would be faithful to the gospel. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Lord, we pray that we would not take these blessings like this morning for granted. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.